I better start recording that. Um, so these, um, these villagers, they wouldn't move until someone had a message from God for them to move. But they, they couldn't move because the guy that had visions from God had died. And I'm like, what? This, is, this isn't Christianity. This is, just, this is bizarre. And so I got in contact with the Indonesian consulate. And eventually I got in contact with the United Nations that were on the ground. Um, and they were, they were monitoring the situation. They had people monitoring the volcano to see if it was going to explode or not. Uh, or to you know, go off. And so I sent them an email. I said, look, I know this sounds crazy. Um, I said, but I believe God speaks. And I said, I've had this, this, this dream and I believe there's going to be a pyroclastic flow down this side of the mountain and it's going to happen very, it's going to happen imminently. And they actually replied to me and said, we're going to take your word seriously. And two days later, they evacuated the villages, the village, villagers, and two scientists remained behind in the village. Two days later, the volcano erupted, the pyroclastic flow, it took out the village, killed the two scientists. And so this was kind of like my next introduction <laughs> to the realm of the prophetic. Was like, and I had no one to talk to about this. I had no one to dis disciple me in this. You know, and it was, and no, people just didn't know how to handle it. And I, to be fair, I didn't really know how to handle it either. Um, and then in, just prior, to, in the year of 2008, three months, I think it was about June, July time, I was going to sleep and this angel appeared to me in my room. It was just off, off, off the side of my vision and he spoke to me and he said to me, on September the 18th, something's going to be really, something's going to happen that's really bad for the UK economy. And, uh, and so this was three months out. So again, I told the church leaders and stuff and we'd moved to a different church at that time, uh, which is kind of like what our church is, was born out of. And he was like, okay, well, we'll just put it on the back burner. We'll just wait, wait and see if it happens which was a much more favorable response to the previous place where they just thought I was a crazy guy. And sure enough, on the 15th of September, we remember that Lehman Brothers collapsed in America. Uh, then Hank Paulson, the Secretary of the Treasury, and Ben Bernanke, the Chairman, they had a $700 billion bailout. Um, then a one week later, the US markets crashed 777.77 points down. And so God gave me this kind of knowledge months before it had even happened. Um, so if, you, if you're into stocks and shares, please don't, don't give me a phone call because I have no idea. You know, I just, that was just a one-off. Um, then there was another time where, um, this was, when was this, in 2011, uh, I had this vision. And in this vision, I was in this silver train and we were going around the corner of this coastline and then a tsunami wave was coming straight towards me. Uh, and then I, I knew that was it and it hit the train and, we, and immediately I died in the dream. And there were, then there was another following dream which showed all this water just coming into the house and stuff. So again, I didn't really think anything of it. Woke up one morning st stuck on CNN and there'd been some massive earthquake under the sea and you were just starting to see the beginnings of something coming. And <coughs> so I took, I think I took the day off work and I just watched it. And then later on in the afternoon, the, Jap the Japanese government said they were looking for a train but they couldn't figure out where it had gotten to. Uh, so I phoned the Japanese consulate and said, look, I believe I know where it is because I had a dream and I saw all the landmarks and stuff and it came around the coastline and I explained where it was and uh, didn't really think much of it. And then I, I was watching the news all night and uh, I fell asleep, must be about two o'clock in the morning and I heard this loud clap in the front room and I opened up my eyes and then the ticker tape and it just breaking news, they found the train exactly where I said it was and it was exactly the same kind of train as well that I'd seen. I'd never seen a train like it before because obviously Japanese are like these aluminium tra trains which I've never seen before. Um, and so this has kind of been my introduction to the world of the prophetic, so which is a little bit 
probably beyond what most people are comfortable with. And if, you're, if I'm honest with you, a little bit more that I'm comfortable with, but now it's become my normal. Um, and so after all that, I, and, I, and then God gave me a series of dreams about, so the 2008 crash was really a blip compared to what's coming, which I think we're on the knife edge of, probably within the next two years, you're gonna probably witness the greatest economic collapse on a global scale, the, the likes the world hasn't seen, probably since the Great Depression. Um, and uh, in 2018, and this is kind of like where I'm starting now. So in 2018, uh, I remember in November, at one of our church plants, I got up to give a nice little cozy sermon as pastors do. And as I got up, this word just dropped straight into me. And it was mene, mene, tekel passing. And I knew it had to do with Theresa May because Brexit vote had gone through, but it looked like she was trying to do some kind of fudge deal with Europe. And I just, in that instant, uh, and I, I appreciate there might be people here that were pro-Brexiteers and people that were pro-Europeans, so please, please forgive me. Um, and if you've got any problems, take it up with God, because I'm only telling you what, what he said. And uh, that's it, blame God. And uh, that night, I just felt God saying that Theresa May would be stepped down, you know, because she'd overstepped her boundaries that was given to her, and, um, and that Brexit would take place. And then suddenly that evening, God started... I, I was prophesying things. I had no understanding of what I was talking about. And he was saying that how the church would go through this, almost this kind of reinvention, so to speak, and how that uh, new, uh, that God wants to resurrect monastic communities in this nation again and resurrect houses of prayer. And I'm like, monastic communities, what, what is he? You know, I kind of know what a monastery is, but I had no understanding of, of what he was saying. The trouble is with the prophetic, you've got to be very careful that sometimes that you can prophesy something, but you end up becoming the prophecy. And, uh, and so since 2018, God has led me and Tracy on a really quirky and interesting journey uh, into a rediscovery of things about our past and things that God wants to bring back that are specific for the nation of Great Britain. This is not true for any other nation. I'm not saying that God isn't going to do his own thing over there, but something very specific to this nation. And so everything I'm saying today is really, I believe, God's heart and, and, and a, a generic blueprint. Now, the thing is with a generic blueprint, I'm not saying it means this exactly and it means that exactly. There's a lot of wiggle room for how we can interpret those things and how the, that's expressed in local communities and local churches. But I do believe God wants to do something significant in this land. And the paradigm shift that we're about to come into is the opportunity, like COVID was an opportunity to change things within the church. So for example, in, in our church, uh, as a pastor, we were going down this track and I knew it wasn't the right track to go down but because a paradigm event hadn't happened, I didn't know where we were supposed to go. But that was okay because, you know, I felt God saying, you just got to carry on going down this track until I change direction. And then suddenly COVID happened and that forced us to completely redo things in a very different way. Uh, so we started doing things like we, we wanted to always be on the right side of the law, but also, you know, we had to understand that. And again, I'm, not, I'm sorry if this offends people, but we, we were seeing things in scripture, for example, you know, it says go out into the nations and baptize, you know, and uh, make, make, make converts and that kind of stuff. We're seeing that in the scriptures. Yet at that time, the prime minister was saying, do not baptize. Uh, we were seeing the prime minister saying, please do not take communion. Um, you know, please do not get baptized. And it's like, well, OK. And I had to come to a point where it's like, 
well, there's a difference between the kingdom, so the empire of man and the kingdom of God. And we had to start making a decision and saying, so what we did is we worked out ways where we could be legal, but do what the, the Bible commanded us to do. And so, um, and that then just slowly just managed to start shifting us. And then God started moving us into this whole new season and um, this understanding of monastic communities and, 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 and what we were going to become a part of that. So I'm just going to share a few things because I know I'm waffling a bit. But in July 2022, I had this prophecy which called, was called the seasons are shifting. And there were several elements to that. The first one was that we were about to move into a new season, which was a spiritual autumn, which actually autumn traditionally is the harvest time uh, as well for a lot of nations. So we just celebrated the Feast of Ingathering in Israel. Obviously, you know, Sukkot, which is the last final harvest festival. So it's about also represents the ingathering of the nations. And so I believe prophetically the church is coming into a season where we will see revival but we're not going to see it probably in the way that we'd hope to see it in a time of comfort and joy i believe that the revival we're coming into will be born out of quite difficult times for this nation god's constantly said that lying to me it will be the worst of times but it will be the best of times the worst of times for this nation economically politically but the best of times because we will see god move again in our nation in quite wondrous and spectacular ways so in this uh, Seasons of Shifting uh, vision, he talked about that we were going to see things in the world. I'll just read off what I got here. You're going to see the systems of this world starting to fail and you're going to see some incredible things in these days. Um, and then the main message of that was that, you know, when Moses went to Pharaoh, he said, Pharaoh, let my people go. And it was as God was though saying to the, to the nation and to the church, Get Egypt out of your heart and Egypt, let my people go. And so there was this kind of dual message in that and that this new season that we're coming into will be a wonderful season, but it will be a time of great change and a time of great consternation. Uh, and as I said, it can sound quite doomy and gloomy, some of the stuff that I'm saying, but actually this isn't a message of doom and gloom. This is a message of hope and promise for the future of God's church because God wants his church to thrive in these days, not just about survive. Okay, so as Joseph was raised up in his day, I'm talking about the Bible, Joseph, as he was raised up in his day, he wasn't really there to save Egypt. He was there really to save Israel. Um, and obviously Egypt got blessed. And this is, I think, what God wants to do with the church today. He wants there to be a Joseph generation. And I don't use that term as in like just some kind of buzzword. I mean it literally that the church is in a place where she understands the signs of the times and she is prepared and ready for what's coming so that when it does come and it's coming very soon that we won't be caught on the back foot. We won't be running around like headless chickens going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, why didn't you tell me God? But actually we're in a place primed and ready so that we can be the instigators of the great end time harvest as opposed to us running around wondering why did God leave us in this mess. So several things that he said on that prophecy was Stonewall would fall Yay. The economic systems of our land would fall. Mm. Our, our government will implode on itself. Um, God wants Egypt out of his people and thus needs to tell the powers of Egypt, let my people go. All that can be shaken will be shaken. The world will be shaken out of the church, which unfortunately will be quite costly for some churches. Many established churches will close and other denominational ones will close, some because the candlestick is removed, others because of financial issues. The house church movement for a season will explode. 
uh, will rise up bigger and bigger and stronger than previously and then in time that those churches will resurface so to speak and then they will become the big massive churches of the future. Now some people are like well I'm not really into big church I want to do small church that's great whatever God does it all okay but do remember the book of Acts they started as a nice little cozy prayer meeting in the upper room and then exploded into a church of 3,000 Then it says a few chapters later 5,000 men got saved in one day let alone their families and their children and their, their mother-in-laws and all that kind of stuff okay can you imagine that can you imagine running a church you know you've got a nice little leadership team it's all running nicely and then suddenly got 3,000 people coming at your door okay what would you do with them all yeah that's that's a serious nightmare but it's one that we have to be prepared for um and this whole nonsense that oh you know god wouldn't possibly put you in a situation that's beyond your comfort zone no disrespect god will always put you into a situation that is beyond your comfort zone i found that time and time again but he is looking for people that have got gumption he's looking for people that have got a, a valiant heart to just say you know what lord i know i'm a man of unclean lips and i know i dwell amongst the people of unclean lips but here i am send me this is what god is wanting that's the heart that he wants to see in his church again and so another thing that God was saying, as well as in this prophecy, was that God was leading us to the golden age of the church. Now, this takes me back a few years that God gave me this open vision once. And in this vision, I saw this graph and there was like these lines and at the bottom were dates. Now, the dates were fudged out, so I couldn't see them. And there was this line at the bottom and it was just pretty much flatlined for ages. And then slowly but surely it started to go up and up and then it just suddenly shot up. And at the very top of this graph, it said the golden age of the church and it lasted for a short period of time and then just ended. And this is where I believe that God is taking his church is that through what's coming, God is going to release his glory more and more on the earth in these days. And it's going to rise and increase and increase and increase until it gets to the point known as the golden age of the church, where we are literally going to see for a season heaven on earth. So that's all a, a lot of prophecy and very interesting stuff so how has that helped us on the ground so to speak so our journey really began with that 2018 prophetic word and about things like monastic communities and and i was like i i what what is even monastic communities what does that look like in a day where you know king henry the eighth dissolved pretty much most of the monasteries we've only got a handful of them left in this nation you know and why would god want such an old antiquated system back in this nation again well what's the point of that and so as i started looking into it obviously looked into the real early history of where monastic communities came from it's the desert fathers so you're talking about ad 390 400 and then that that then laid the foundation for really much for so people like saint benedict you know he wrote the the order of saint benedict which is uh, a rule which all monasteries still live by and are governed by and that book's been going now for like 14 1500 years uh, because of the principles that he set down so i started reading all this stuff and then i, I started yeah. meeting other people that were on a similar journey and then it, it 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 brought me back to this really weird place was the importance of the rhythms of prayer in our christian faith and I'll talk a bit more about that in the second session because I, I, it's all very well me giving you this prophetic stuff, but you need it to be grounded in theology as well. So in the second session, I will actually start looking at this biblically and how this applies to us now. Because, you know, I could spout all kinds of stuff and you might go, oh, that's all very well and good, Chris. But, you know, what does that look like in the real world? So I'll, I'll get to that in the second half. 
And so we've been on this whole kind of monastic journey to the point now where we've put in plans now to build our own modern day monastery. So some of you may be aware that we've got a, a large field. Uh, so how did that happen? So the field that we're in now, basically once COVID happens, we were for the first six weeks, we were just completely stumped. It was like, well, what do we do? We can't do anything. We've just got to be shut down. Um, but inside of me, something was rising up saying, this is wrong. And I knew from my church history that the church has never, never been shut ever once, except, we'll say once, but except for one time in Britain's history, uh, which was over 600 years ago, when one of the popes were, had a disagreement with one of the, uh, the kings in this country, and he shut down the church. Remember, there was only one church back then, and he shut down the church for six years. So other than that one blip, the church in 2000 years has never been closed. It's always been open, open for business all the time. And so I, I was really challenged by this. And, uh, and I, was, I knew things like the Magna Carta in ancient English law, where it states that the government does not have the authority or the power to dictate civil law over the church. But that's in there. It's in the Magna Carta. No one's changed it. No one's annulled it. So it's still the rule of law by the ancient decrees of this land. So I was aware of all this stuff. And I was like, hmm, this is challenging. And uh, I said, well, what are we going to do? And then Tracy was reading in the book of Jeremiah, because my wife's a very lovely spiritual lady. And uh, she was reading the book of Jeremiah and it said, uh, go buy an allotment. Uh, uh, you know, was it? Sorry, go buy a field. Beg your pardon. Yeah, go buy a field. And uh, yeah, that'd be good, wouldn't it? All pre-made. So go, go and purchase a field. And Tracy said, I feel God saying that we need to get a field. I'm like, oh, yeah, all right. Um, I was in a very different mindset back then, you know, from where we're at now. And um, but, so the next day, my Bible reading happened to fall onto that. And, I, you know, she does her own thing and I do my own thing. And it just, I was like, okay, well, you know, I don't believe in coincidences. So I thought, well, you know, I'll just put it out there. Just say, hey, does anyone know of any, anyone's got any land we could hire as a church? And one of our friends said, yeah, I, I might know someone. Just leave it with me and I'll have a look. Two weeks later, I think a week later, she come back to me and said, yeah, I've got this lovely Christian couple. They've got a field. They've got a real vision for it, um, but nothing's happening. And, and they're really open to see what God wants to do. And these were elders at a local Methodist church and stuff. So we met up with them and uh, they were really excited by the fact that we could have like church in the field. So two weeks later, because the field was just like just up to here with with grass and weeds and stuff so two weeks later the field was completely mowed made ready for us and we uh, had like a little tent that we put up in the middle where the worship band and stuff played and then I just sort of preached and within a couple of weeks it started off just a few of us and then within a couple of weeks because we put it on Facebook we were getting people from all over the south coast people as far as London and things coming because we were one of the only few churches uh, I think in the across the whole south coast that were actually doing church and so we didn't badge it as a living word event because that's the name of our church. We just thought it's just church, you know, we just all come together and we just had a time of worship and, uh, and I just preached loudly and stuff like that. <laughs> and, um, and it was fun. Everyone loved it. it. had a real kind of kind of like a, you know, big camp kind of meet, church camp meeting. And there was a, a lot of sense of camaraderie. Because of that event, we probably lost half of the people in our church because I was like, this is, this, is, this is wrong, you know. But all the time we were getting legal advice from Christian Concern saying, could we do this? Could we go outside and worship uh, as freely as we used to, etc.? And, and so according to the guidelines of the law, we could do everything that you do in a church 
as long as you did it in a field, hide for the purpose of worship, you could just carry on as normal, except just stand a bit further away from each other. But as you can see out here, two meters apart doesn't actually feel that far, does it? But if I'm inside, it feels like he's right over there. So, so people would come in their family groups and we'd all just like sit down and we made it work. We did have the police turn up once. Uh, there was reports that a rave was going on where we were. <laughs> And, uh, and the guy, the police come up to me and I was like, oh, here we go. We had our risk assessment and everything and I had everything all ready for him. And uh, he looked, he came up to me and said, oh, there's reports of a rave going on, but quite clearly this isn't a rave. And I was really annoyed. It's like, well, we're, you know, it's, it's all right. It's, it's good. Do you want to have a look at our risk? No, I'm not interested. He just, just walked off. So we only had the police turn up to us once and that had nothing to do with us. I think someone was playing some really loud dance music in his, in his car down the road and we got blamed for it. Um, but yeah, it wasn't us. And so... And that was kind of like that started shifting where we were coming from. And, and then Tracy, then again in Jeremiah, it's, was it Jeremiah or Ezekiel? It said, um, build, what you say? It? The, <coughs> yeah, build, that's it. Build the sanctuary amongst the allotment. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So the next thing we, Tracy had was, I feel God is saying, I know what you're thinking. Why isn't she up here doing the talk? Um, so, so Tracy had this thing where she felt God saying, feed my sheep. And so what we did then is I've got a YouTube channel called Storehouse 7. And so I just started upping the teaching content. So I did a whole series on the book of Revelation, 79 episodes going right from the beginning to the end and, uh, and various other things. And then we sat down with all of our trustees and our leaders and we said, look, if something's coming like we believe God has shown us, how much would it cost for us to feed uh, all of the church for a period of three months? Because when it does happen, there'll be this nasty lull where nothing moves for several months, we believe. And so we said, what can we do to ensure that people get food for that period of time? And it comes to around about £40,000, which actually isn't really that much money. And then someone then suggested, well, why don't we also grow our own stuff as well? Um, and then, so yeah, that's a great idea. So feed my sheep spiritually and practically. So we then got a big shipping container and we, another place where we, and we just basically bought loads of food and that's now in storage. It's on a rotation. So we run like a food bank. So people that are poor in the church, they have access to it. So it's constantly being rotated. So there's no issue there with the rotation side of things. And um, yeah, so that, that was up and running. And then came the field. So we went to the farmer, said, um, I know it sounds a bit awkward, but we feel God is saying, you know, I mean, how do you feel if, you, if someone else owns some property and you go up to them saying, yeah, I feel God is saying that you need to do this for us. OK, so I was, I was I'm really uncomfortable. I was I'm really sorry, but I do kind of feel that God is saying that we're to build an allotment on your field. And they were like, praise God, we've had this vision for years that, that God would do this. And we just really want to see that happen. So he said, what do you want? I think it was Trey said, what about an acre? Yeah, yeah, we'll do that. So he, he plows an acre for us. Now, an acre doesn't really sound that much, does it? Until you're stood in it and you're like, I've got to fill this whole acre with veg. And it's enormous. So then we come up with this other idea. We divide this acre into fifths, thinking, well, that will make it easier, manageable, until you're stood in a fifth of an acre. And you think, this is, that's a lot of work. And so what we did is we break, broke the field down into fifths. So you'd have like one for legumes, the next section for onions, the next section for brassicas and all that kind of stuff, and potatoes. So we could constantly rotate it year on year. And we started doing that three years ago. And we had no idea what we were doing. I mean, the farmer just kind of let us get on with it. Bless him. And, uh, you know, 
he's an expert. He'd been in market gardening all his life, and then he's just looking at us idiots, just going, oh, I'm going to put that there and do this. And he's probably like, oh, dear. Anyway, so I remember being a, a great man of faith that when, I, when we first started uh, on this field, I was putting these uh, beetroot seeds into the grounds, and as I was putting them in, I was like, this is never going to work. This is never going to work. And, and I must have done several rows, and I just felt quickened by the Lord and convicted, like, that's hardly going to let anything grow with that kind of attitude. So I had to go back and bless them all. So now every seed that I put into the ground, we blessed. And that first year, we had crops. Like the farmer himself was like, I can't, I can't get my head around. I couldn't believe the size of these crops. So we would have parsnips. I don't, do you remember Melanie in the Heart magazine? She did it. Like the tops of them were like that. And they were like, like that. It looked like, you know, those kebabs on a rotisserie, just like one of those. And, and, and people, you know, one, one of those would feed eight people. I mean, and so God showed us that actually his provision is not just in the, the amounts that you can have, but also in the quality, not just the quantity of what you can have. And uh, we were getting, um, uh, what are those white things called? Turnips? No. Cauliflowers, thanks. I know my veg really well. So we had a cauliflowers, that, and they, they were bigger than my head. Now, that's saying something, right? So that these things were huge. And again, the farmer said, you know, in all my years, I've never been able to grow cauliflowers to that kind of size. So we just, we just knew God's hand was all over it. And interestingly, the name Joseph means God will add that which is lacking. So where we were lacking in skill, understanding, and pretty much everything, God just brought that phenomenal increase. And we just saw in a very real and very practical, very down-to-earth way, a very wonderful spiritual reality of God giving us increase and blessing us. And I must admit, I did procrastinate on this because I knew <laughs> it was going to be a lot of hard work. And then I think someone had a dream where these clocks were going into the ground, but the clock was running out of time. So we knew we had to get on with it. And, um, and so that kind of then, you know, got us into the whole realm of kind of farming. Now, you know, someone said to me 10 years ago, Chris, you're going to be like a church planter and then you're going to be like a farmer and you're going to do all this. And I'll be like, why? Wow, that's just mad. That's just crazy. I don't, 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 I don't believe it. Um, but this is kind of part of the, the journey that God has brought us on. Why are we doing this? Not because we're crazy preppers or anything like that. Sorry if there's any crazy preppers here, but, but it's, it's because God has given us a vision and, and has showed us so many visions pertaining to the future. And I've seen so many things now come to pass. That how, can, how can we not act? How can we just sit there and just think, well, maybe it might happen in 20 years time. Maybe it will just blow away. Maybe it will just go. And it's not going to go away. And these things are getting worse. Now, anyone sat here, you know. You can feel the pressure in the air. It's like being in a pressure cooker in this nation. It's slowly getting hotter and the pressure's getting more and more increased. And something is going to give at some stage. And, um, and I suspect all of you here as well, you are probably have got a growing, and, and I, you know, I'm a pastor, so I see this from both sides of the coin. There's a growing discontent with church as it currently stands. The thing that I need to say about this is that, that God has really led me on this really peculiar path with church because one of the things he kept saying was, you need to blend the ancient with the modern. And I was like, well, what does that mean? But it had to be unique to Britain, not just something, not, you know, I know the Israel thing is important and, and the Jewish and the Hebrew roots, but this was something that I felt God saying, I want the, something that's beautiful and of this country, but ancient mixed with the modern. And I didn't really understand that. And so God's led us on this really peculiar thing where I'm taking the best 
of the traditional established churches and blending it with the modern, with the prophetic and the Holy Spirit and the, and the freedom that you have in probably a lot of the more modern churches and somehow bringing all that together in this, in this new kind of wineskin. Now, because I, one of the things that God kept saying to me was, is that this revival is going to be unusual in that generally most revivals have caused the church to kind of move on. Well, not move on, but, but, but re, relearn something, re, revisit something. So, of course, if you think back in the late 1800s and at the turn of the 19th century, or the 1900s, sorry, we had um, the, things like the gifts of the Spirit coming back, you know, things like healings and miracles suddenly coming back to the church. Then we get to the 1930s, 40s, you know, uh, and then from the Azusa Street Revival, and then you have like the Assemblies of God that came out of that and various other movements. So we had then the Pentecostal movement that exploded out of that. That then eventually came round very slowly to Britain. And although we had our Welsh Revival in 1904, but then it came down, and that became the charismatic renewal, which went into the traditional uh, churches and really breathed a, a new breath of life into them. But in time, then things moved on, and then you had the house church movement, and various things and here we are today amen still in this kind of like where we've gone round the mountain this whole conundrum of where, where do we go from here and so each move has caused the church to rediscover things and kind of move on and consequently as we've moved on we've also jettisoned a lot of our history as well so um, when we had um, in 500 years ago we had the reformation we like booted everything to do with the Catholic Church away from us and then in time even within with the early Protestant Church then they kept subdividing and kept subdividing and kept subdividing and then you have the Church of England and then eventually from that came the Methodist movement and somehow each time we've kind of got narrower, 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 narrower until today we come to the great richness of the modern evangelical charismatic movement which is like this wather thin uh, thing and that's all that's left of it and, and I feel like what God wants to do in this next move of God is to keep all the good stuff that we have learned but somehow bridge something of our own history and bring those two things together so the church will be a very modern church but also at the same time a very ancient church because despite what our feelings may be about the established churches of this nation there are things in those established churches which I think God wants to honor and God loves and God respects and Sometimes we just jettison things off because, well, we just want to go with the new thing. We just want to go with the new thing. But I do believe where we're headed, it's not going to be just a new thing. It's actually going to be coming back to our roots in some sense and bringing those two things together. Now, when I come into part two with the theology of this, I'll explain why and how some of these things come into the church today and how it's rooted and grounded all in Scripture. It's all been there. Okay, it's always been there, but I think it's for us to rediscover. A bit like with the Azusa Street Revival, there was the other way around where they were rediscovering things like the gift of tongues and stuff that had been pretty much ceased. Not that we hadn't ceased, but it, you know, from the mainstream church, it had been pretty much forgotten about. And this is where we're coming back today. And this is why I think God's going to do a wonderful work of unity in the church in the days coming ahead as well. Because you know what's going to happen? If a lot of churches get shut down because of economics or because God's removed their candlestick, you're going to get a lot of... If, if you can imagine Christianity as lots of different birds, okay? Now, I know birds of a feather like to flock together, but you're going to have to put up with the fact that 
you might be this lovely peacock and you might have to start sitting next to a seagull. Uh, you're going to get people from that denomination, this denomination over there and, all that, and, and some of the ones you really don't like. And they're all going to be in the same room. And they're going to say, hey, we love Jesus too, but we need to meet together and we need to pray together. We need to be there for one another. And you can't then be going around, well, you know, it says here and all this. Kind of stuff. God wants to bring a new unity to his church as well. That's not based on um, uniformity. Or wouldn't it be lovely if we all believed in the same thing? But we don't. I, I could say one thing that would just fracture everyone in this uh, in, in this place right now. You know, just cross across because these the things that do. Everyone's like, "What's he going to say?" I'm not going to say it. But it's like these these are what I call secondary doctrinal issues. So things like the primary tenets of the Christian faith are found in the Apostles' Creed. Okay, that is the core tenets of the Christian faith and has been memorized and spread down and, and taken down through church history and other creeds as well, like the Nicene Creed, etc. Take your pick. But then it's the, it's the secondary issues that constantly divide us. So, for example, baptism. Do you believe in infant baptism? Do you believe in adult baptism? Do you believe it should be in the name of Jesus only or the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit? Do you push them in forward? Do you push them in backward? Do they go in by themselves or does someone help them in? You know, and, and there are literally church denominations that have formed because of that. Any Baptists here today? No, there is. They've not put their hands up. Okay, right. Um, you know, and that's, that's been the problem. And I feel, I feel one of the things that God is, is tired of, because Jesus prayed in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, Father, I pray that they will be one even as we are one. Now, we don't want a oneness in principle or in theory because we're all part of the body of Christ. But actually, in actuality, it's like, guys, the Bible says to bear with one another in love. That means you've got to put up with each other. Amen. OK, so. What I love about the dynamics of churches is there's always somebody that really annoys you, isn't it? And you're all laughing because you know it's true. But we're called to get on with each other. We're called to love each other. We're called to this, this, this new thing. And another thing that God wants to bring back to his church is community, real community. And not community because like, well, we need to engender community. So what we'll do is we'll have a church meeting on Thursday night and we'll force them all to sit in a room and, and commune with one another. That, that's not going to just going to generate another church meeting. Community has to be a natural thing. And so one of the so when I was younger, I worked in a, a place called Historical Records and uh, I had to like go through. Now, I'm a guy. I don't like looking for anything. You know, I hate looking for things. And so I had to like look through all these historical records to find like this little card. Inevitably, I always have to ask the ladies to help me all of the time because I don't know how they did it. They always just found, found it. And so and, and the part of the job was to. Uh, award these medals but the thing was is in the letters a lot of these old people are saying older people say you know what as as bad as and terrible as the war was it did something to this nation which i really miss now which was it united the nation together didn't matter what you thought didn't matter what you believed we all came together in a solidarity and community and were there for each other and that's quite frankly very lacking in the church today you know i have some friends and they do a lot of work with the muslim communities and the Muslim communities love the Christianity of the East, but they don't like Western Christianity because Western Christianity is all about me. Uh, Western Christianity is not about family. Western Christianity is not about community. It's just about having the nice church, the, the, the platform ministry, or you know, me, myself, I and Jesus, God channel, and I'll go to church because you know, whenever I fancy it stuff. That individualistic 
culture is a post-modernistic culture and it shouldn't be in the church. In fact, as we read our scriptures, we should be a community of believers, not this disparate, uh, constantly divided and constantly individualistic culture that we're in. And we've brought that into the church much, I think, to our own damage. Now, I also feel as well, spiritually, that the churches in their current format have gone as far as they can go. I don't think, uh, and uh, please forgive me if you disagree with me, and I know that this is a very loaded statement, but I don't think the Anglican Church can go on much further as she is. I don't think the Methodists can go on much further as they can. I don't think the evangelical free charismatic churches can carry on as they are. I don't think any denomination can, ca can carry on as they are because where we're going, we need a new wineskin and we need new fresh wine. Not that God's different or he's gonna do something remarkably different, but we need to change. We've become hardened, old, gnarly husks and God wants his life to be in us again. And that life which is, let's come back to the heart of what the gospel is really about. It doesn't matter if you're Anglican, it doesn't matter if you're Catholic or Orthodox or, or Baptist or, or whatever. We gotta get on with each other. And God, and you see it says in the Psalm 133 where brothers and sisters, well brothers, dwell together in unity, there he commands the blessing life forevermore. We need the life of God in our churches. And I mean, that's one thing we've got to say amen to. We need to like, I'm a pastor. I know exactly how you feel. You know, I know what it's like to be on the other side. Like, oh man, I just don't get church. You know, what is the deal with church? And I'm a pastor. I'm like, what is it with church? I just don't get it. I'm trying to do the right thing, but because it has to be a move of God as well. This is not something we can manufacture. This is not something we can drum up. And that's why a paradigm shift is coming. And in that paradigm shift, the church has an opportunity to either give up and fall down, which unfortunately many will, or we have an opportunity like, we're not just gonna let this, this tidal wave crush us. We're gonna, we're gonna put up banners for Christianity. We're gonna be these little, little fires in the darkness that are gonna light up. And as I said, it will start unfortunately, not unfortunately, but it will have to come back to small communities like house groups and things, because the times will be quite dark that we're coming into, but this is, but then in time, the Christian community will, will grow and grow and grow. And when it looks like to the onset to the world, like what happened to Christendom, so many of the churches have been shut down. You know, I do believe that there is coming a chastisement to places like the Church of England and the Methodist Church. And, you know, but God's got a heart for the Church of England. I, I, I know that I'm kind of wittering all over the place, but we've got to be careful that we don't 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 interpret the whole universe through our personal lens. So some of you might hear think, why would God be interested in the Church of England? Don't they know it's this, that? God knows very well, thank you very much. But God still has a heart for these churches. He has a heart for the people. And so don't be surprised when you see things, even in the judgment that he brings upon them, somehow these tendrils of shoots, fresh shoots coming out of those movements. You might go, God's not into denominationalism. No, I don't think he is. But in those denominations are things that he treasures, that are things that are important. There are things that you can get in the Anglican church, you just can't get anywhere else. There's things you can get in some Pentecostal churches that you probably won't get anywhere else. God wants to bring those things together in a wonderful and vital way. And one of the things that God wants to do for his church in this day is to bring the church back to being a people of prayer. One of the things, I remember reading this mission book once, and it was talking about the difference between African churches and Western churches. 
and it looked at African outreach and evangelism and, and how many people were getting saved and coming to faith compared to churches here in Britain. And what was the, the telltale sign, it was so obvious, is that we would put money into our evangelical programs and we would you know, do this and have great speakers and stuff. And yet we were just getting this really naff amount of results. And then the underlying problem was prayer. You looked at the prayer that went on in the Eastern churches and it was enormous. And you looked at the amount of prayer that went on in the Western churches and it was like just this little tiny blob because I don't think we really value the power of our prayers. I think the church has kind of lost the way. I'm going to talk about this in the second half, the theology of what is actually a church, which is more of a house of prayer than probably the way that we've made it. And I do believe that God is doing something amazing. I remember recently picking up this book by Pete Gregg called Punk Monk. And, uh, and bearing in mind this journey that we've been on about building uh, monastic communities, and that's what we're, we're going to be doing. We've put in plans now to build a modern day monastery that will be doing things like the ancient monasteries used to do, where they pray the hours of the day, you know, uh, like uh, prime, ter, sex, known, and, and matins, and all that kind of stuff. We're actually going to be re-bringing that back and I know some of you might think of well why would you isn't that isn't that backward going no because oh, I'll get to that in part two and I'm not going to go into that now but anyway I picked up this book uh, by Pete Gregg and on the back it had this quote from uh, a German Lutheran pastor called Dietrich Bonhoeffer okay I'm sure everyone's like oh yes love the guy love the guy okay this is what he said the restoration of the church will surely come from a sort of new monasticism which has in common with the old the uncompromising attitude of a life lived according to the Sermon of the Mount in the following of Christ. But at this time I don't believe it's time to call people together to do this. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he wrote that many years ago, he could see that the future of the church would be in a form of new monasticism. New monasticism or, or any kind of monasticism is about community. It's about prayer. It's about having centers of education and centers where we can train people out and train up missionaries to send them out to plant churches and things. So it's not what we're doing away with one model to replace it with another. Actually, it's complementary to the current model. And prayer is on the up. I don't know if you've noticed, for the last, what, 25 years, we've seen the likes of IHOP just bubbling around and doing their thing around the world. We have um, uh, Pete Gregg with his uh, 24 prayer movement. We've had the rise of things like Burn 24, think interesting Celtic Christianity, um, even a resurgence where Christians are getting back into forms of ancient Christianity using things like liturgy. Um, and then from just the phone app sort of thing. So we've had the Hallowed app, which has had, since the last time I wrote this, 10 million installs with 225 million prayers completed on the app. Okay, that's staggering, 225 million prayers. Uh, Lectio 360, which again by Pete Gregg, in a room, I think that's by him as well. Other things like iBrevery, which is taking the, uh, the, the things like the brevery that they use in, uh, in monasteries, Divine Office, Time to Pray, Just Pray, uh, all these different apps that you can have. There's, there's a real growing resurgence in people wanting to pray. Uh, at our church, we run a thing called Prayer School. So we're teaching people all the different styles of prayer, things like Lectio Divina um, and various other forms. And the amount of interest that we've been getting in that. And the thing that surprised me, is the people that have been coming, these are charismatic Christians that have been doing their stuff. And they can, they can get out there as far out there as, as the next best charismatic Christian. But they've all said the same thing. In 20 years of being a Christian, I've never experienced a closeness to God through these ancient church disciplines. And not only that, 
but doing it in the context of community instead of it's just me, myself, I and Jesus in my quiet time in my secret place. And there's nothing wrong with that and you need that. But actually doing things together in community and praying liturgical prayers together in unity is really powerful. You might think, why would anyone think there's power in praying liturgical prayers? Easy. Because when I'm praying those liturgical prayers, I know that I'm praying with another couple of probably a couple of hundred thousand, if not millions of other Christians around the world, the same prayers. And that's one thing that as evangelical Christians, we have no concept of anymore. We're very good at our own prayer meetings. We're very good at our own prayers. But are we very good at praying with the church corporately? So that you know that on such and such a day, these are the Psalms that you'll pray. These are the things that you'll say, knowing that thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of other brothers and sisters around the nation, around the nations are praying the same prayers. That's something which I think God wants to bring back because I'm not being funny. The Muslims are really good at it. Okay. Other religions are good at it. Judaism is good at it. Okay. Parts of Christendom are good at it. But our evangelical Christianity where we've come away from all that stuff, where we jettisoned it off, I think it's much to our poverty that we're not a part of it. So, I think, uh, I think I've said enough there. I think I've pretty much covered everything I wanted to say. And so I appreciate I've just dumped a lot of stuff on you there. And it's just like, well, that was a lot of things that you've said. But then in the second part, I will print, pull it all together biblically so you can see what that practically looks like and how that then if you guys feel like you're called to do something similar, how you could take that and add your own expression into that and, and stuff. And because God wants a beautifully, I know this is a dangerous word, but he does want a beautifully diverse church today. You know, we do, he doesn't want everyone to be exactly the same. Okay. So there's so much room for the flavor of God. Lord Jesus, I thank you, Lord God, for the things that you've shared and the things that you, you've, you've, you've pointed out today. And Lord, I pray, Lord God, that you will take these <laughs> seemingly vague concepts and help us, Lord God, to ground these into reality, into our everyday lives, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord God, that you will help us as the church, Lord God, to see ourselves as the church, not as individuals, and help us, Lord, to be ready and equipped and ready to take on, Lord God, the sheer volume of people that will be looking to the church for answers in the days ahead. Lord, we give you all the praise and we give you all the glory and all the honour and all the saints said, Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Chris, thank you so